Hey, Interwed family, this is Pastor Rudy Rodriguez, Calvary City on the Hill in Provo, Utah. Just wanted to thank you all for listening and or watching via the World Wide Web and joining us in worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ or just seeking more information about God. If God puts it on your hearts, would you be willing to join us in partnering through giving to the ministry to bring the gospel to all the world by visiting our website? cityonahillut.org that's cityonahillut all one word dot org and clicking on the donate button any free will offering would be appreciated very much thank you so much god bless you hello everyone good afternoon um that's that's two blows that i've been dealt with this morning so um, where do you go from uh, news like that? And you know, I've been uh, uh, I've been watching him slow down um, the last several weeks and uh, the last few months, and he's getting slower and slower and harder and harder to move around for him. And and I kept wondering, and I wish I would have sat down and asked him a few more things, but. Um, of course, you know, when you get him going, you wouldn't shut him down. <laughs> he was hard because once he got on that track, he he could not get off of it. And that was that was amazing, an amazing, uh, um, amazing thing, amazing quality that he had. He was dogged when he was uh, on something and uh, hard for him, for anybody to deviate from that. So, um, gosh, I don't... Uh, the message that I have was, uh, is um, we were in uh, Isaiah, and as you uh, can tell, I'm definitely a little bit distracted, um, and uh, never imagined getting news like that first thing in the or during the service. That was um, I knew that earlier he uh, Rose had called and said that he was uh, lying there and he was he fell asleep there at the at her house. Because he was not feeling well and didn't want to be alone, and, and maybe he knew something that wasn't he wasn't telling anybody. So um, I don't know. Um, I just know that he will be uh, greatly missed, and uh, um, but his uh, his spirit continues. He he's not passed. He's graduated. We will, we will, um, and uh, and he'll probably be just as dogged as ever. <laughs> Um, so praise God for that. That's uh, you know that's the amazing thing about uh, about our God and about the the faith that God has given us. This uh, this hope um, that uh, that there is hope that there is an afterlife and that there's there's more to this life than just what we know, what we see, and what we experience. And I want to talk about that a little bit today, and and we'll see if we can get through here and. Um, Right now, you don't know the struggle that I'm going through because it was going to be spent a lot on hell. And that's always a tough subject, and it's tough enough. It's bad enough the dreams that I had in delving into this. And uh, uh, But we will, uh, um, we will go where, where God leads and, and just uh, trust Him. And that's the bottom line, is He's proven Himself over and over and over. And He continually does so. 
And that's one of the comforts that we can find and we can have as, as Christians and believers, that we can trust Him in the midst of everything and anything. And that He, as, as I've uh, heard before, and I, I wish I, could, I knew who uh, to contribute it to, but um, it's an old saying, and I've heard it since um, I was saved, is that uh, God, um, that uh, don't let circumstances be your God, but let God be the God of your circumstances. And that's what He is. He's the God of our circumstances. And sometimes those circumstances are unplanned. They're unwelcomed. They're unwanted. But this is the God that we um, know, have come to know. This is a God who has answered the, the prayer that, uh, um, that I sent up with uh, Marnay's uh, uh, mom's passing and her aunts and, and all those things and, and just praying that God would use those circumstances to, to, to make them aware of the brevity of life. And how quickly it comes. Um, title of the message is the same as, uh, as it was a few weeks ago when we were last in Isaiah. When the mighty are cast down. It's a continuation. And we probably will only get through the, the next ten verses. But uh, that's okay. Um, last, the last thing that I wanted to say before I get started is. The, the thing that I didn't get a chance to say in, in last preaching about this in in uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. That's all the further we got. And I wanted to, to mention in, in passing that when we were talking about there, what uh, what we dove into was the idea of, of election, of choosing, God's choosing, His right to do so. It's His prerogative. And it's His choice to do so. And uh, the one thing that I wanted to remind you of um, before we leave uh, verse 1 is, is this, that I didn't get a chance to say last time, is, is that... Um, Election is not a New Testament doctrine. It's always been in Scripture. It may not have been called that in the Hebrew, but that's what it was. That's what it means. If you remember the word, I, um, it was bakar is the word, and it means to choose, to elect, to, to pick something or someone for a specific uh, reason. And, and um, it, so it's not a New Testament doctrine. It's actually an Old Testament word and doctrine. And we have to understand that, that it's not something that just came along later uh, as so many uh, um, skeptics and, and um, those who fight against the, the faith, who fight against God, who, who will not bow the knee. Um, you know, they, um, they refuse to understand that God is sovereign in all things, and this is the way that he, does, he has chosen to do things. So we're here in, uh, let's read the first, uh, the, the next uh, ten verses. Um, here in chapter 14, um, and the peoples, and starting in verse 2. Well, let's, let's just recover uh, uh, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. It says, When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and again choose Israel, um, and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the of uh, Yahweh, the Lord, as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive, and will rule over their oppressors. It will be in that day when Yahweh gives you rest from your pain and turmoil, 
and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress tree rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter has come up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings, the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and your music, your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, in the midst of your announcements and pronouncements of judgments and the like, that you still love your people and that you show them favor and mercy and that you remind us that we yet have a place and that you are preparing that place. Father, we thank you that those uh, despots, those tyrants, those usurpers will all come to one common thing. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you remind us that you are the God who is uh, the God of everything, that you are indeed in control of all things. Even in these circumstances, Lord, you are in control. And we thank you that you have proven yourself over and over and over again of these things, that you love us. Pray now that you would open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to those things, um, these things that are written in your word. For your name's sake and for your glory's sake, we ask it. In Jesus' holy name, be glorified. Amen. Amen. So that's, uh, <clears throat> with that being said, moving on to uh, verse 2. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male and female servants, and they will take their captors captives and will rule over their oppressors. God will not always um, stand idly by. And He doesn't really stand idly by. Um, sometimes it seems like that. Sometimes it, it really does seem like God, why, why, why are you quiet? Why are you not moving? Why are you not doing? And he's doing things in the background. Uh, um, he's doing things that we don't often think and understand and, and uh, don't even know that he's working in them. And here, the, the peoples, these are instruments of, of God's plan of redemption. The people that God will use, the very same people who some were captors of the, of the Babylonians. And remember the, his, the history of this? Um, he's speaking primarily of the king of Babylon. 
and the peoples that, that he's talking about is, you remember Babylon, they were uh, um, the, the peoples of those times, they were conquerors. A king had to conquer stuff. And he would take possession of lands and, and usurp and overthrow those kingdoms. And would do away with the, oftentimes they would do away with the, with the kingly line. Um, so that there would be uh, little chance of any of someone rising up against them. Um, and they would take the people captive and they would draw off the best of the people. The best of the best, the most intelligent, the most uh, useful, the smartest ones, the, the ones who were the, the, the best workers, the best athletes, the best speakers, and so on and so forth. They would take the best of the best for the most part, and then they would uh, introduce them into their own culture. And he's saying that these instruments, even they are God's instruments, and God will use them to bless his people. They're the ones who are going to come along with the Israelites and bring them back to their own place. So God uses everything in his plan of redemption. He's reminding his people that though they are oppressed, though they are enslaved, though they are uh, made to do that which is against their will, that they will have redemption, that there is redemption, because our God is a God of redemption. And that is the promises that he gives when he says that they will take their captors captive and rule over their oppressors. They're going to do this. They're going to use these very people who God's going to use to help them come back to their land. And remember that uh, when uh, um, uh, a nation is is uh, overtaken, um, that oftentimes the, in those days when they would take away all the, the people, there would be a remnant left there. And sometimes they didn't know what, what they were going to do. Oftentimes there were, like I said, there were people that were taken from another land. And so they'd have to decide, are we going to go back to our homeland or what are we going to do? Some would choose to stay there and build a life there. Others would choose to go back. Some people would join themselves um, because of the, um, like Ruth, um, in the Old Testament, when when push came to shove, when it came time to make a decision, she decided that the her mother-in-law, that her people would be her people. The, the mother-in-law's, uh, uh, Naomi's people would be my people, she said. Your people will be my people. And more importantly, your God will be my God. And so they were introduced into this idea of this monotheistic God, this invisible God, whom they, the foreigners, the uh, Gentiles didn't know. And oftentimes they would attach themselves and... Um, God would use all those peoples. In verse 3, And it will be in that day when God, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain. There's the promise of rest. I can almost see Jesus standing where he says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That great promise that he, he gives. To give us rest from our burdens, from our, our religious attempts at trying to please God. And we're worn out. They cannot save you, those attempts. Those things that we try to do cannot save you. And so God is the one who has given us rest. And he says here, I will give you rest. The Lord gives you rest, he says, from your pain. He'll give you rest and, and he'll give you rest from the pain and the turmoil and the harsh service in which you have been enslaved. That's the promise. 
It sometimes is afar off. It sometimes is uh, one of the things that uh, so oftentimes we do is we want it to, to end. We don't want to have to face it. We don't want to have to deal with it. And so we pray that God would take it away. But sometimes it's just His plan. You know, in the past I've said that uh, people say, and they've told me, they say, ask me this question. They pose it to me. They say, don't you believe that God wants the best for you? Yes, He does. Then I ask Him a question back. I said, well, what if the best is you die for the faith? What if the best is you get your head cut off? What if that's the best that God has for you? That you stand for what you believe? What if that's the best? And that's kind of a way of steering them to the, to the reality of we are not, this is not our home. We are just passing through. This is not our final place. This is not where we're intended to be. Our destination as we walk in our faith is meant for something else. And God gives us rest from our religious attempts at trying to please Him. Praise God. But He also promises ultimately there will be rest. You will find rest. And He's going to be our rest. Our rest is in Him. Not in anything else. And um, he says, in that day, um, uh, remember, this is the day of judgment of God's coming to fruition. In that day. When the, when the word uh, tells us in that day, that's what it's referring to. God's going to pour out judgment. And sometimes we have to go through it, right? We're in a situation right now in, the, in, our, in our current reality and all the things that are going on. We are in the, uh, in the possibility of being plunged into one of the darkest times in our history. As Christians, there are things that are being spoken of, laws that are wanting to be passed to... Um, if you haven't looked it up, I'm going to commend it to you. Go look up the Equality Act. I can't remember which HR bill it is, but it's one of the bills that is uh, out there. And essentially, it's uh, it's uh, they they're calling it the Equality Act, and and it's uh, essentially stifles anyone, anyone, especially Christians, from um, deviating from the acceptable language. Not just with the penalty of, you know, pay a fine. We're talking about going to jail. They're talking about uh, making a, uh, and if you're familiar with the book, 1984, if you haven't read it, you should. And Animal Farm. Those are books that we should all be familiar with. And if you haven't read it, go read it. You can get it on, uh, on Kindle. Or one of those sites. It's important because they're they're wanting to make what essentially is a as a a ministry of reality. They want to be able a minister of truth, so that they can determine what the truth is. And if you deviate from it, hey, you have to go to a camp. And you got to be reeducated. I'm not kidding. It's being spoken of right now. But we must press on. We must continue. Just like the Israelites, God is saying, look, you're going to go through it. This is what's going to happen. But there is rest. 
See, we have to be long-sighted. We have to look far off. We have to look and see that there's, there's something that is promised to us. And we may have to go through it. Just like Noah. Imagine that. The millions and possibly billions of people that were killed at the flood. These eight singular people. His neighbors, he had to imagine them being just washed away. He had to go through it. Yes, he was kept safe in the ark. But he had to go through it. And so sometimes we will have to go through it. And that's just one of the things that, that we uh, are uh, told. Jesus himself said, in this world, you have tribulation. It's not something that we might, could. He just said simply, you have it. It's just the way that it is. But there's rest. There's promise. And this, uh, this taunt that, that God is, uh, and remember that this is God who is speaking here, this, this taunt that they will take up. Um, it says here um, in verse 3, And it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. Um, in that day, this is when God has promised them that they would give rest. The taunt against the king of Babylon, the victors frequently sang taunt songs against their victims. So, um, one of the things that we're going to see here in, in a minute is the that death is the great equalizer. That's why this uh, uh, the title of the message is "When the Great," when the when the greats are when the mighty are cast down. Because that's one of the things that none of us escape. There's a hundred percent mortality rate. We live long enough, we're going to die. Stephen is a prime example. He lived long enough, and his time came. Each and every one of us is appointed an amount of time, and that's it. No more, no less. Each and every person that has that has passed away this last year and and this year, it was their time. It was simply that. There's a time for everything. And in this time, these remember the, the Babylonian kings, they had this idea. And, and when there was a conquering king, sometimes they would take this title. I mentioned it last time that they would take the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because they conquered another kingdom or several kingdoms in certain cases. And so this is the, the rest that he's talking about is the rest. Ultimately, that he promised, remember, when they were in the midst of their slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel, Moses came and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to get out of here. And we're going to a place that God will take us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you remember what happened? Because of unbelief, because of rebellion. They spent 40 years wandering around when it most scholars believe it would take maybe three to four weeks at the most with this many people. The most. Forty years. For what? For their unbelief and their rebellion. And here's the hard part. So God could do what He had told them that He would do. He said, none of this generation is going to step into the land. Not one. Except for Moses, those who were obedient. Moses, Joshua, Caleb. Those who came back with a positive when they spied out the land. Because of your unbelief and because of your rebellion, this is going to be the price you paid. It took 40 years. And when the last one was finally put in the ground, 
Then it was time. A new generation, just as God had spoken. He says this in verse 4, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. By the way, if you take up a, a, a taunt against a king while he's living, what's going to happen to you? You're going to find yourself dead real fast. Kings don't put up with that. Okay? They're going to say this. Um, the taunt that they're going to take up is, this is the taunt that they're going to take up against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Hebrew term here has a range of meanings, including brief sayings like those of the book of Proverbs and a figurative poem like the one here. Now, this is uh, um, uh, a taunt that after he's, he's brought low, what are, they, what are they saying? Well, death is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how mighty you think you are. It doesn't matter how tyrannical, how despotic. It doesn't matter. Every single one will meet the same fate. You'll become worm food. And we're going to talk about worms in a minute, maybe. Um, I'm going to try to push through this as fast as fast as we can. The king of Babylon, the king is a chief representative of oppressive human power. Oppressive human power. Right now we have oligarchs, or technogarchs as I call them. And we have ultra, ultra wealthy billionaires with billions upon billions of dollars that are influencing everywhere and everything. And this is one of the singular times in, in history where um, we can understand that it's one of the times where it is we're capable of speaking with one another clear across the world in an instant. It's the first time in history where that's possible. And with all these different powers coming together to do what they're going to do. And this is what the Lord says in verse 5 through 7. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. Or this is the taunt, part of the taunt against the mighty king. He says, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepters of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained uh, pers uh, persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Uh, one of the Proverbs, it says, when a wicked ruler dies, there's shouts of joy in the street. People rejoice, right? Yeah. And Lord willing, we'll get to experience that. But there is that, uh, there is that chance. And I want to be clear in that God leaves absolutely nothing to chance. Whatever He does, it's purposed. He has a purpose for it. There is a purpose. Even in evils that we see unfolding. And it's hard to grasp that. There's a purpose for it. It's not purposeless. It's not by chance. There's a reason for it that we don't know or understand. But the people are rejoicing and they said, now we're at peace. The whole world is at rest. There's, there's rest and there's quiet. There's break forth of shouts of joy. So singing instead of the song of the ruthless, a new song will be heard in response to God's judgment and deliverance. And that's what He does. He judges and then He delivers. And in the midst of it, there's always a remnant. His own people. That He will always bring forth. And 
Part of the judgment, if you, if you want to uh, um, understand this, part of the judgment is discipline. He tries us, as, as it were, with fire. We're going to see that in a minute. And that fire burns off all the dross, all the impurities, like gold. When you're refining gold or silver or precious metals, you want to remove every bit of foreign material that you can so that you have the purity, the most pure thing. And it was said of old when, when they would do this and they would put it um, in the crucible and, and they would burn this thing over and over again and keep removing from the top of it all the, all the, all the uh, impurities that the goldsmith would know when it was time because he could see his own reflection. That's what God does in the judgment. He refines us through that fire, through that crucible of pain and suffering. And maybe you're thinking, that's not fair. That's not right. I want you to remember one thing. The only thing that wasn't fair in this world was for a purely innocent, 100% innocent Savior who died on the cross for us. That's not who died in our place. That's not what we go through. There's a reason for it. Um, as was said earlier in one of the praises, that God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He will always work all things together for good, for your good and for my good, for your good. This is what He promises. Um, he says in verse 8, even the cypress trees rejoice over you. Um, the fact that this mighty king has been brought down low. And uh, in a way, in a sense, he will be food for that very tree. Fertilizer. Um, he says, the cedars of, of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter has comes up against us. Because remember when they would besiege a land, they would cut the trees and they would use that wood. For all different kinds of purposes, for fires and for building um, uh, scaffolding and all kinds of things. Since you're dead, no tree cutter comes against us anymore. Even nature responds to God's acts of judgment and restoration. The Assyrian king boasts in their annals of the magnificent trees that they carted off from pillaged lands to build their splendid palaces. They would strip the land and make them dependent on the conquering uh, nation. Verses 9 through 11. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead. All the leaders of the earth, it raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They respond and say to you, even you have been made weak like us. You have become like us. Your pomp and your music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your cover. When they're brought low, they're really brought low. There's no one king in hell as sometimes is popularly taught. Some people think, well, Satan is the king of hell. No, he is not. He's not. There's a lot of ideas that are just totally false. 
that we have. They're all equal. Death is the great equalizer. It brings everybody to the same station. Everybody has to face it. The only ones that will not have to face it are those who are in Christ, because that's what Jesus promised. He says, even if you die, yet shall you live. You blink your eye on this side and on the other side, you're going to be more alive than you've ever known. Now notice what he says here in the, about the maggots are spread out as your bed beneath. Now I want to read, um, I want to go to uh, Matthew because it's important. Uh, when the mighty have fallen, the, the great equalizer steps in to claim its prize. And as it says in Proverbs, the, that Hades, Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek, the abode of the dead. There's another word that is used that is called Gehenna. And Gehenna, we're going to read about, Jesus talks about this in Matthew. And in uh, uh, Mark. <clears throat> and you'll see it in your bulletins. It's in Mark 9, verses 42 through 48. I want to read that. Because um, Jesus says some interesting things about this. He talks about hell. He talks about this place. And understand that, that when he's talking about this, they would have understood exactly what he was talking about. There was a place outside of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. It was called the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of Gehenna. And that's where they would go, and they would take all their filth, and they would take the dead animals, and they would take all these things, and there was a continual fire going it was essentially a land pit where they would go and, and they would take all their, dump all their, their, their uh, filth and their trash and, and who knows what else. And there was a fire that was continually burning there, never ending. And if you can imagine, there's taking dead animals and so on and so forth. And so there is what? There's decay. There's a smell they would be familiar with. And the fires and the smell that the fire produces. Burning hair. One of the horrible, I just hate that smell. It just smells terrible. And you can imagine animals. And there would be maggots there because of the flies. They would be very familiar with this imagery that Jesus presents to them in Mark chapter 9. And this is how it reads. Starting in verse 42 through 48. He says this, and he's warning about hell. He says, and whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who, believed, uh, who believed to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. That's going to be better. For those who, um, and this is a twofold. This is speaking of those who are the believers. We are considered children of God when we're new believers. We're considered babies, newborns. We're children in Christ. It's very possible that that's what he was talking about, but it's also could be literally talking about when somebody corrupts and perverts and does things to cause little ones to be led astray. He says, it'd be better if a millstone, and if you don't know what a millstone is, look it up. Sometimes it was uh, several tons in weight, and it would be used to crush the grains and everything so that they could get their flour and their, their uh, um, and meal and all those things out of all the different grains that they would grow. 
He said, it'd be better if that was tied around your neck and you're cast into the, you know, they toss you into the ocean. That, that would be better. He's, he's, he's using this language and he said that would be literally better than, than to, to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So those that do, they will meet as part of the Equality Act that they want to be push on the American people. That they want to have a library time, a reading time, where transvestites or transgender read to the children, to pervert them, to make it acceptable to them. They want to start with younger and younger children. It would be better if they had a millstone tied to their neck and tossed into the ocean. That's what Jesus is saying. Then he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands and going into, and here's the word Gehenna, that awful place, than to go to hell, into hell, into the unquenchable fire. This is a horrible picture that he's painting about this place. Then he says in verse 44, by the way, in your, uh, in, your, uh, um, in your Bibles, you may have brackets. The newer versions of the Bible have brackets. And the brackets are there to show that the earlier manuscripts, the, the best manuscripts that we have that are earlier and earlier, closer to the original, don't have these um, verses right there in those places. And that's not something to be all freaked out about. It was something that probably a scribe inserted trying to make emphasis. Because it is, it is introduced and it is uh, where it belongs in verse 48 in those older manuscripts. Somewhere along the line, somebody thought, man, it'd be a good idea to put this in there so people get the, you know, get the gist of it. Give them a better idea of what Jesus is talking about. So if it has brackets, that's what those brackets are about. It says in verse 44, uh, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's wanting to make a point. This would be the, the thing that he's trying to do, trying to make the point here. And he says in verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet be cast into hell. Same word, Gehenna. And again, verse 46 isn't there in the original, so I'm going to jump down to 47, and uh, we'll continue. And it says, And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell. That'd be better. And I would dare say that it'd be better to go with one hand, one foot, and one eye. Hell is a horrible place. Hell is a horrible place. It's unquenchable fire. Look what he says in verse 48. He says, It'd be better than to go in with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell. He says, Where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Here's the thing. He's talking about eternally. He's talking about eternally. It's eternal life. The flames of hell never stop. Remember the story of Lazarus. The old man, poor beggar Lazarus, and the rich man. We don't know the name of the rich man. Lazarus is named by Jesus. And the rich man, Lazarus, Lazarus, just 
just give me one drop of water that I can cool my tongue just for a minute. Jesus is talking about the reality of what hell is like. Um, and it's very possible that what is being spoken of back in Isaiah is not talking literally about the things. It's not a, a doctrine or a theology that we build upon. But it is some realities that are similar to what Jesus is talking about here. And then he says in verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. There is the, um, the crucible. Salt has many different properties. And that's one of the things as Christians that we're to be is salt and light. Salt, it preserves. Salt, it makes things taste better. Uh, sometimes when you make your, your food and you're cooking and, and uh, you forget to salt, you taste it and you're, oh, it doesn't have any salt. need a little bit of salt. But another thing that salt does is, and, and it can be used, it was used at different times for the Roman soldiers, the uh, saying that we get, you know, you're not worth your weight in salt. It was used as money. It was valuable because it was hard to come by. So it has many different properties. But here's the one property that I like. And, and I want to thank Chuck Missler. He's the one that, that, uh, that I learned this from a, a long time ago. He's the one that mentioned it early on in my Christian walk. And he said, uh, salt has another property. It makes you thirsty. So let's be that salt. We're going to be tried. We're going to be salted with fire. We're going to go through the crucible. It's just the way that it is. We're, we don't belong in this world. We're strangers, foreigners, we're aliens. Our place is somewhere else. But it's not in Gehenna. Amen? There's a promise. And it's not there. You see, you can avoid, you don't have to go to this horrible place. You don't have to experience. This could be the only hell that we ever experience. But, you must be born again. Jesus said it. You must be born again. And it's not something that we can do. It's not something that we do. It's something that God does. He causes us to be born again. And when we're born again, we begin to understand we're convicted of our sins. Instead of relishing in our sins and... and uh, uh, not floundering, but uh, um, just swimming in our sin, loving our sin, not even thinking about sin. That's the lost person. You can avoid hell, but it's only found in Christ. He's our only vehicle. He's our only way that we can avoid that. And it's not just when He saves you, He doesn't just save you from this horrible, horrific place. He saves you from the wrath of God. Because he endured it on the cross. And that brings us to the next portion of our, of our service, which is communion. We recognize that, and we, we're so thankful that he's given us this to remember. You see, if we're going to avoid hell, it has to be, and it can only be found in Christ. For at the name of Jesus, and only at the name of Jesus. His is the name, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And there is no other. 
Muhammad can't save you. Joseph Smith can't save you. No one else can save you. No one. Buddha is not going to save you. They're all dead. They're in their grave. And more than likely, they're in this horrible, horrible place because they rejected the truth of God. None of those things can save you except Jesus. And it must be through the cross. It must be understanding that He paid the price for you. And that's what makes salvation secure. Is that we know that it's secure. If you can say, I know that when I die, I will be in the presence of God with confidence. It's because Jesus died on the cross for you. And that He died and was buried. And that He died and was buried and rose again on the third day according to Scripture. That's why. Not because of anything that we do. Not because of anything that we've done. In fact, in spite of it. I want to read these uh, um, from Jonathan Edwards. Because I wanted to quote it. I wrote it down this time. This is what Jonathan Edwards had to say about hell. He says, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. You know, it's true. When you talk to people, ask them this question. Are you a good person? I guarantee you with 100%, they're going to say, yeah, I'm a good person. Use that as a door to swing wide open. Say, really? You know, hmm, it's interesting. Take them through the law. Have you ever lied? Yes. What does that make you? A liar. So you're a liar. How does that make you good? Have you ever stolen anything? Yes. What does that make you? Thief. No, it makes you a liar and a thief. Have you ever looked at someone with lust, a lust after them? The answer is yes. You've committed adultery in your heart. That's the way God sees it. What does that make you? A lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. You can go on and on and on. But you present people with the law to make them understand we've broken God's law from the word go. And we need to be saved. Don't um, flatter yourself to thinking that you will escape it. Talking with people, like, well, you know, I'll go to hell and I'll you know, party with my friends. No. It's an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. It's a horrible place. Praise God that Missing him. He's not there. He's rejoicing. Praise God for that. I want to finish with this. And uh, um, um, one of the things that Malcolm Muggridge said. He said, and I've quoted this before. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. But at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. There's a reason why the darkness and the evils of Marxism and communism does not work. Because it's rooted in the foundation that man is somehow good. That he has no need of God. That's why it can never work. That's why it is wicked and evil, because it's a lie. It doesn't work. There is no good men on the face of the earth. There may be some decent 
And there may be some more decent than others. There may be some with integrity. But Jesus said there's only one good. And that's God and him alone. There is no good. It's a, it's a most intellectually resisted fact. And why am I saying this? Because Jesus has said in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he also said in 17 through 19, he didn't stop there. He continued, he said, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, when God causes you to be born again, you come to the light. There's an old movie, The Poltergeist. It was a lie. In that movie, there was a line. Uh, uh, originally, and there was this little, uh, this little uh, lady. She'd say, run to the light. Run to the light. The light is shown into the darkness. Men's deeds were evil. If God is moving you so in your mind and in your heart that he, that he is convicting you of your sin, come to Him. Receive Him. Receive Him as your Savior. Receive Him as your sacrifice. Receive Him as your substitute. Confess your sins. Come to Him. And be saved. Don't be those who deny the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Be one of those who is saved, because that is our salvation. That is our hope. And He will raise you to new life. And He does promise that He gives you eternal life. Because He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise. It's life eternal, not life in damnation. Not life in hell, in Gehenna but life eternal. And praise God that our brother has entered into that reality. He's no longer a man of faith. All that he waited for is real to him now. Hallelujah. And that brings us to communion. There's a lot of other things I could have and wanted to say, but, but communion is, is what we're going to uh, participate in. And it's remembering him. In, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 32. This is how it reads. Paul speaking of this, this that we're given, that we should do. There's really only a couple things that, that God has, has commanded that we should do. Number one is to assemble. We should assemble regularly. We're a family after all. We're, we are a communion. Secondly is to participate in the communion. And that's really remembering what he did. 
partaking of him and also to be baptized. And for those who are who are listening, maybe out there on on the interweb that that uh, maybe they've you've decided today is the day God has moved you and opened you up so that you would receive Christ. Wherever you are in the world. And if you've received Christ, then be baptized. We're commanded to. And this is one of the privileges that we get to do is to remember who he was and what he did and what he said. In verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, Paul writing, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat uh, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He died. But he didn't stay dead. He was buried. But it was only a weekend reservation. Because Christ is risen. And then he says, Therefore, whoever eats the the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Um. So let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and in number sleep. And the sleep here is not taking a nap. Sleep here is the dirt nap. Not to be so flippant, but he's talking about death. Many have died, he's, he's saying. Um, but we judge ourselves rightly. Uh, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you uh, come together to eat, wait for one another. And <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do. We're going to participate in, in, uh, in communion and we're going to remember him. And uh, I want uh, for us um, today um, to each, we'll, we'll put that in a place where we can do it, and each individually just come up and, and take, take, take a little piece of the bread and take a cup, and then go back to your seats, and then we'll take it collectively as one. Because that's what communion is all about, community. And remembering at the same time all that He has done for us. And it's an awesome and amazing thing, because we're remembering Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for communion. We thank you for the new believers who um, can participate wherever they're at. We thank you for this that you've given us so that we can remember all that you have done. In particular, that you did pay that price. And that as your word says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God in him. 
And it's only in Christ Jesus. And all that he, he had done and all that He has done, all that He did and all that He will continue to do. It's for His kingdom's sake. It's for His gospel's sake, that eternal gospel and that hope that is ours that You've given us. Thank You, Lord, for all these things and for recording them for us so that we can know them and enjoy them and rejoice in them and rejoice in the fact that our sins are forgiven when we receive Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all these things and more. Have your way amongst us. Let your spirit move amongst us. Let us examine ourselves rightly. Help us to know what that means and to, uh, to do it. If we have anything, that we would confess it to you and be rid of it. For your word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful, righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we bless you. For it's in the holy, blessed, glorious, mighty, and powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.